Hello, writers, world makers, and craftspeople, and welcome to another episode of Right Minded. Today, my podcasting partner, Brooke Warner, and I are going to talk to the super smart author, Matthew Salasis, about the craft of writing. But this isn't just any talk about craft. Matthew has written a book on craft in the real world that struck me as both long overdue and incredibly timely. And I say that because he really flips traditional notions of craft on their head by looking at craft that is shaped by our world and in turn shapes it. So craft inherently holds power structures and biases that we need to interrogate and think about in our stories. I consider it a must read for any writer and especially for any teacher of writing because of the way it expands the notion of craft and explores so much that tends to go unquestioned about writing craft or is even viewed as sacred and untouchable. And I'm thinking about like simple narrative rules, Brooke, like show, don't tell. And, you know, why is telling so bad? This is a question <laughs> I've had since the beginning. Or how craft norms, you know, often American craft norms at least tend to emphasize a very stripped down minimalist aesthetic with an emphasis on minimizing adjectives and adverbs. And again, why? Or I think about one that was recently told to me about a story of mine uh, that your main character should go on a hero's quest like Joseph Campbell outlines in A Hero with a Thousand Faces, where the hero goes out on an adventure quest and faces down, you know, the perils of various obstacles and then returns with a type of treasure or wisdom. And Matthew takes on craft norms like those and many others and deconstructs them which I found, you know, liberating in the end. Brooke, I'm curious, just to explore writing maxims here a little bit, are there any maxims or rules that you've tended to question? Yeah, I mean, gosh, yes. It's, uh, you know, it's, and especially I question them because my writers that I work with push back at me sometimes, you know, it, it's such an interesting thing to think about when you're teaching craft and I teach memoir craft in my classes. And of course, one of the things that I say to authors is these are like baseline, these are foundational, you know, there are things that you should know how to do, but it is actually important to question these things. And I remember, um, you made me laugh about the adverbs, because I sat in a craft class with Jasmine Ward a few years back, and she really spent a good amount of time really challenging this idea about the adverb, you know, and how it's demonized by MFA programs and how much she loves adverbs. And it just made me laugh. You know, it, it, I appreciated it so much because uh, she was taking on this idea more broadly about boxes and rules and small spaces that writers are supposed to navigate when they are, you know, doing it quote unquote right, or when they're being literary, right. Or when they're adhering to the rules of craft, now, mind you, I mean, like I said, I do think it's super essential to learn craft, you know, to know what you're doing before you start breaking the rules. But I also think, you know, Matthew's way of teaching about craft as the lived experience of craft is really important. This notion that craft is inseparable from identity is super important when we're talking about these questions that we've been encountering in the past years around racial reckoning, because, you know, he's kind of saying, look, the way we're talking about craft is kind of the way that a white culture wants you to do craft. And so I love this topic, you know, craft doesn't separate the author from the real world, Matthew writes in his book. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's it, at the end of the day, this is a creative endeavor. Uh, and, a, you know, the real work of craft is always going to be to convey your lived experience through a story that engages the reader. And so, you know, simple and not so simple, right? Yeah, definitely. Good points, Brooke. And coincidentally, on that topic, uh, I saw a quote from the author Jean Reese yesterday on Instagram, and she said, to give life shape, that is what a writer does. And it reminded me of Matthew's statement that when we write fiction, we write the world. 
And that's true because we're offering a worldview with a story and that worldview holds implications because of what's represented or not represented in a story and what or who matters and doesn't matter in the story and even the textures and shapes that a story takes. And I'm a lover of craft books. I, I don't, Who knows how many I've read, but, but I think I've largely read them with a view of craft as a type of aesthetic conversation that existed largely in a vacuum that was somewhat separate from life, you know, kind of like it's part of the land of aesthetics or something. So I I really appreciate how this book positions some of these seemingly innocent narrative rules in a cultural, existential, and historical context that gives them greater meaning. Um, You know, just to loop back to the Joseph Campbell's um, theory of a monomyth, Matthew points out how very male-centered that is and how it doesn't account for a tradition of the heroine's journey or other stories in which people do not set off to conquer and return with booty. And booty here is sometimes seen as knowledge or spirituality or love objects. And that style of storytelling, he points out, was in fact influenced by the Western style of oral storytelling, which did focus on adventures. And it wasn't as cross-cultural as Joseph Campbell said. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I've been thinking about that for years from the vantage point of the heroine's journey, you know, that we really do celebrate this particular kind of journey, you know, and not everybody is uh, going out into the world and adventuring, you know, the, some of the stories that we need to tell are the stories of domesticity and, you know, what people are doing on the home front and, you know, raising children or whatever we're doing, you know, and, and the value of these kinds of stories. And uh, I was struck by something Matthew writes in his book, uh, which is craft is in the habit of making and maintaining taboos. Mm. (laughs) And he was talking about how things often edited out of workshop stories in the name of craft, you know, end up impacting writers of color in particular, who have largely been expected to explain themselves to a white readership. So touching upon a little bit what I was talking about before, and he's going to talk about in the interview. Um, And we have been reckoning with these issues, you know, not only because writers of color are sick of being told that they have to explain or qualify their experiences, but because they're also rightfully claiming their own ways of storytelling. uh, And also that, you know, craft doesn't have to look one single way. And it certainly doesn't have to be through the white lens or cater to white readers. And I think that's something, I mean, this subject, in my opinion, merits a whole book, while Matthew certainly touches upon it a lot. You know, this idea that we have had a very, you know, white, heteronormative male view of storytelling has influenced me in my space working with women writers a lot. You know, I've certainly, I've heard from editors over the years that a story would be better if it had a male protagonist instead of a female protagonist. You know, just these sort of subtle ways that the way that we do craft or what the expectations are is through this super sort of dominant and normative lens. And so just this whole notion that Matthew is saying, no, look, it's about identity and lived experience. It makes me think that craft is voice, you know, craft is how you write. Um, and and so it just struck me. It's, it's, it's an important book, as you said. And then I wanted to talk to you about this, Grant, because there's a whole section in his book where he writes about the gag rule that is popular in creative writing workshops. And so for those of you who haven't experienced this, it's when basically workshops are presented in class and the or rather the writer presents their writing and they are expected to sit quietly while the whole class discusses 
does their work and gives feedback. And then you just sit there and take it. Um, and so Grant, I'm curious how you feel about this approach since you got your MFA and you're probably subjected to this. <laughs> I bet 90, 95% of workshops work like this. Um, I haven't been in a workshop in a long time, but it's so predominant and it, go, it largely goes unquestioned. Um, teachers adopt it just because it's been done in the past. And I think it's um, efficacy is really questionable, actually. And when I was in classes like that, I uh, never liked it. I always thought that <laughs> learning was was more about dialogue and that these this kind of rule you know, made the atmosphere of the class, you know, odd and stilted and tense, which all those things don't go into learning for me. You know, they're, they're, it was a painful experience. And I always felt a little bit traumatized by it. And I'm sure other people were even more traumatized than I was. And just to kind of get back to its purpose, though, its purpose is to minimize defensiveness on the part of the author and prevent the author from explaining things that weren't in the story. But I just think there are better ways to go about this. And I think Matthew has some some uh, kind of brilliant ideas and that stuff that as teachers, especially, we should really think about. So I'm really happy that he uh, is questioning this. And I'm curious also, Brooke, because I, I think about this, the workshop model is so dominant that I know it's, it's, it's just everywhere. It's pervasive. And so in a lot of casual writing groups, I think they practice the same rules. And I'm curious if you've seen it in uh, She Writes writing groups. Yeah, you know, I, I I agree with you. I think it is super pervasive. I've heard people talk about it. I mean, luckily, I guess, um, because I didn't get an MFA, that's not something that I was subjected to. And therefore, I don't ever teach it, <laughs> you know, and, and also because I teach memoir, we're so mindful about subjecting the reader to this kind of feedback. Um, you know, one of the things I think is very dangerous about the gag rule, as we've described it, is how much other people project onto you. You know, they bring their own stuff to the experience of listening to your writing. And so therefore, those listeners, you know, even if they're in an MFA program, and perhaps especially so, I mean, we're not even talking about envy and competition and all the other bullshit that sometimes surfaces in these spaces, you know, but there's also just a propensity not to be particularly mindful or conscientious all the time. Um, and then if you, the writer, trigger someone with your story, they might say something hurtful that's really about them and not about your writing. You know, it, it, so it gets very personal and especially in memoir um, and memoir groups. I mean, I've heard people report back to me that people have told them that their story is not believable when in fact it completely happened. Um, and if a memoirist is dealing with trauma and of not having been believed in the first place, that can really just exacerbate that. And that's a problem. You know, just this whole idea that it becomes personal and it can become about the writer instead of about their work, I think is a real danger here. Uh, and so I guess I'm just getting to the core of what it is that in memoir, especially like letting go um, of expectations of how people's lives should be is probably the challenge of the listener. So, you know, by and large, I'm just not really a huge fan of group critiquing in this way. You know, I just think that groups should listen, uh, that memoirists should get critiques from editors or coaches or even a single writing partner that they trust, or, you know, sometimes a group if it's if there are parameters, but especially in the beginning, you know, I, I really teach my students that it's important to be protective of these sacred spaces that we're creating. Um, and especially in the early days, you know, when we just have these little tendrils of exploration or our ideas, because it can just be too easy to get shut down. Yeah, those are really good points, Brooke. And I, I, you, you brought a lot back to me, actually. I was thinking that the, <laughs> the, the metaphor that works for me in those critiques is that you, you are sitting there as an 
author and it feel you're just vulnerable it feels like everyone in the room is kind of throwing rocks at you and stoning you or it can feel like that mm-hmm. so that's when i mentioned that some people are, are legitimately traumatized by it i think that's true and so yeah it's good to think about you know what works for you as a writer and teacher and how you might alter your approach especially if you're a teacher so i'm eager to hear matthew's views about this after this short break Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Matthew Salises, who is the author of the bestseller, The Hundred Year Flood, an adoptive family's best book of 2015 and the best book of the season at BuzzFeed, Refinery29, and Gawker, among others. His latest novel is the Penn Faulkner finalist, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, a Thrillist.com best book of 2020. And today we're going to talk about his book, Craft in the Real World, an Esquire best book of 2021, a book that I really, really enjoyed. Um, It explores alternative models of craft and the writing workshop, especially for marginalized writers. So thanks so much for joining us, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I just want to introduce listeners to what you mean by craft in the real world. And I want to read a passage from your book and then ask you about it, because I think you're truly shifting the notions of how most people have viewed craft and, and in very important ways. You write, what we call craft is, in fact, nothing more or less than a set of expectations. Those expectations are shaped by workshop, by reading, by awards and gatekeepers, by biases about whose stories matter and how they should be told. How we engage with craft expectations is what we can control as writers. The more we know about the context of those expectations, the more consciously we can engage with them. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how craft is defined by expectations and then what the repercussions of that has been or is in the real world. Yeah, sure. So I I kind of like using romantic comedies as an example. So if you think of like a typical kind of romantic comedy with a me-cute early on, and then these two people who usually kind of hate each other, but there's clearly some chemistry there. And then uh, they start to kind of gradually realize that their feelings for each other are romantic. They kind of consummate that relationship somewhere around the middle. Um, And then there's a kind of falling out. Either they find out, you know, one of them is bet on the relationship or whatever has happened there. And, um, after that fight, there's a kind of rush to grow a little bit as a person and then chase down the other person before they get on a plane and leave for some other city, which apparently they can never come back from. In all of these kind of points, we expect the movies to hit at certain points. And they're, it's really pleasing, I mean, for me at least, to see that they actually do hit those points. And one of the things I get pleasure from in a romantic comedy or from a K-drama, which I watch a lot of, uh, is seeing that things uphold the formula. Um, but I also get a lot of pleasure out of times when the formula is undermined in some way or, or challenged. And both of those things are about expectations, right? It's that I have an expectation from having watched various romantic comedies in the past or various K-dramas in the past. And those expectations are, you know, underneath my pleasure or enjoyment of what I'm watching. And so whenever we're kind of engaging with the text, we're engaging with our past impressions of a text. There, In linguistics, there's this kind of theory of... Um, how quickly you kind of draw up a meaning of a word in your head. And it depends on past impressions of the word. So that if you've kind of come across the word flamingo a hundred 
thousand times, then it's easy to draw. But if you come across the word, uh, I don't know, axolotl, only like a hundred times, it's kind of, it takes a, a few, a little bit more time to pull up the image of what that actually is in your head. And so these things, you know, all kind of meaning relies on our past impressions of something. And this is fine on its own. I mean, I think it's like when we're writing, we're thinking about how, uh, how a reader is going to read our work and what kind of expectations they're bringing to the work and um, what we're expected to do and what we think our audience will get pleasure out of. But it gets a little more complicated when we also kind of take into account the context of those expectations and where they come from and who's kind of set the rules, you know, and it's one of the kind of hot topics now in like the movie business, for example, is representation, right? And one of the really important things about representation is being able to see stories and um, actors and ways of kind of acting out stories and enacting stories from other cultures. Because the more we see stories in a certain vein, the more we expect stories to follow that kind of formula. And... um we're often not really questioning where those formulas come from, where those expectations come from. So the book is kind of thinking about, you know, what are these expectations that underpin what we think of as the craft of fiction? And um, if we can kind of see into where they really do come from, do we want to uphold all of those expectations? You know, do we want to play into these expectations or not? And are there other kind of traditions that we can draw from? Are there other ways we can uh, think about how to tell stories uh, and where, you know, what might happen if we start to try to change the cultural uh, underpinnings of, of these rules? It's so interesting, Matthew. I mean, it's clearly a, a craft book for our times. And I read that you spent a year researching craft in the real world and that you read as many craft books as you could get your hands on. And I thought it was especially interesting that you read far beyond the usual craft books. Uh, it's clearly what you're speaking to right now and focused on writing books also by Asian American and African authors. And so what were the most important things you learned from this research and what craft books or essays would you recommend to a young reader today? Uh, it's a great question. So I, I was thinking, you know, in the last year, I did, in the year of research, um, I did read kind of as many craft books as I could get my hands on, but most of them I didn't really like very much. <laughs> the More of what kind of the research that went into it were things people probably don't typically think of as craft books. Um, I learned a lot from a book called Chinese Theories of Fiction, for example, which is kind of literary theory or, or literary history, and a book called Toward the Decolonization of African Literature, which when I was reading it, I kind of thought this book seems like it would be everywhere, that we would kind of read this in many different classes to think about like where our stories come from and um, to kind of think about other storytelling traditions. But I'd never come across it before. I learned a lot from a book called Tiger Writing by Gish Jen, which is a kind of a bunch of talks she gave at Harvard about her own kind of personal aesthetics and the mixture of um, these kind of intertextual or kind of communal storytelling processes versus the individual interdependent and independent storytelling expectations. You know, Matthew, you mentioned audience and especially the expectations that audiences bring to a work. And, and, and you go into that in your book as well. And I think it's interesting because a real audience in the real world influences a writer's craft or 
I guess, the critique of a book as well. And you write about situating stories in three concentric circles of audience, um, one being a writer's most immediate audience, and then a writer's ideal audience, and then a broader audience of what would make the book a bestseller. And so I'm curious, why do you emphasize audience and, and emphasize it in this way? And how does this exercise, you know, influence the creative process or craft? You know, I've kind of come through the personal <laughs> trials as a, as a writer and as a, you know, as just as a person to thinking about who I'm directing outwardly my identity toward and who I'm directing my story toward. And I spent a long time writing the kinds of stuff you can find pretty easily on the internet where, you know, a person of color or somebody kind of in a marginalized position writes about that positionality for the, you know, dominant position who doesn't understand it and is kind of trying to explain, you know, I'm a human too, basically, right? Like it's kind of like humanizing the human. And I realized after a while that I've been writing a lot of these essays, you know, a lot about adoption. I was adopted when I was two from Korea and aiming them toward people like my adoptive parents, trying to explain that my experience as an adoptee is valid and should be kind of taken into account, um, respected in, in, in that way. And there was actually this one time in particular that I remember I had written an essay about difference and valuing difference. And when I was in high school, my high school had come under criticism by the local newspaper for being like extremely cliquish. And their response had been to buy t-shirts for every person in the school that said, be different or dare to be different or something. And so everybody had the same t-shirt, right? That said, be different. Um, I thought this is like, this is a perfect encapsulation of what's wrong here. And so I was writing about how, you know, so often we kind of demonize difference and say like, we kind of, we valorize similarity and we say like, I value you because you're just like me, right? Like we're all the same, but actually what I often want to be respected for is, is for the things that make me different or unique. Right. And that kind of respect is, is most often granted to people whose differences are kind of easily consumable or uh, non-threatening. And so I'd written this whole essay and my, my dad had read it because I had posted it on Facebook back when I was on Facebook and he sent me this Facebook message that was something like, well, I just read your essay and thank you for writing it, but I still think of you as as not Korean, as just my son. Uh, <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, you know, like I, I've actually been writing, I had written basically this essay for my dad to give the exact opposite response um, and it hasn't gotten through to this person whom I love and like, uh, you know, who loves me. And if it can't get through to him, like it's, there's no way it's going to get through right to the, to other people who don't have that kind of investment in it. And I thought, what have I been doing? You know, like without even knowing it, I've been writing all these essays to a white audience to really like a white adoptive parent audience. And I thought really carefully then about like, what I wanted fiction to do, what I wanted my writing to do and who I wanted it to be for. And, and by trying to figure out what I could do if I kind of redirected my audience toward people more like me, adoptees, you know, Korean adoptees, especially um, Asian Americans, it really changed how I was writing. And I, I kind of came to realize how much the decisions you make are about who you have in mind as your audience. 
And when we don't kind of consciously think about that, we often kind of have in mind the like dominant norms, right? Um, you know, male, straight, et cetera. And when I was, you know, applying this to workshop and having my students actually think about who the audience was, it really helped us to be able to talk about each other's work in a way that didn't like unintentionally sometimes kind of move it more toward a kind of mainstream audience um, and kind of had more respect for the author's intentions. And I thought, oh, this is like, this is a good way to think about many of the kind of expectations that we have and, and whose expectations we are engaging with. I'm imagining, Matthew, that this comes into play in this gag rule workshop that you write about in the book, uh, which is based in Grant and I talked about it earlier in our banter. Um, it's basically where the author can't say a word and has to sit silently listening to others critiques. And you take that on and discuss how it stifles creativity and recommend a host of alternative models and exercises. Uh, and I do, th I mean, I think it sort of speaks to exactly what you're saying about playing into dominant models. But I also feel that this uh, kind of workshopping has gone beyond the classroom. Um, and, you know, Grant and I both know casual writing groups that use it. So could you just share kind of your short critique on it and maybe suggest an alternate helpful model to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So the model has just kind of gone out into the world, I think, as just like the way it's done, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of reproduced because it's the way people have seen it done, whether like in MFA classrooms or heard about it from their friends or uh, in undergrad classrooms or even on TV, right? Like the Lena Dunham uh, show. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I think actually, like if we're thinking about what is the workshop's greatest kind of strength, it's probably that we get to see work in process, right? That in most of our kind of other gatherings, you know, in our book club or in, in a kind of literature class, we're reading work that's gone through a process, um, gone through a lot of revision and has come to us kind of in a final product. And we're trying to understand, you know, the, th the choices that the author has made, but they're actually like choices that have kind of developed over time. And in a workshop, we get to see those choices being made, right, and, and developing. And when we kind of silence the author, we actually take away like the one major benefit of the workshop, which is that we get to like talk to the author about the decisions that they're making as they're making them. And so if I, th I think of like, what are we doing when we're workshopping? Like, why do we do this? I think, you know, silencing the author then is just like, is, is taking away the thing that, you know, we could most get out of a workshop. So that, you know, that's like a really short argument for it. Um, I guess just to go back to the why do why do I do those three different levels of uh, audience? Um, it it comes from uh, an exercise that the writer Matt Johnson did with uh, me when I was in one of his classes. But it's also like a helpful way for me to think through uh, specificity of audience with my students because they're often coming in, especially at the undergraduate level, not really thinking of audience at all or thinking of themselves as the audience, like I'm just kind of writing for myself. Um, and so it helps to be able to think, 
well, if I'm writing for myself, like that's one kind of direct audience. And it's usually not like myself in this moment. It's like me when I was 15 or me when I was 20 or something, me who didn't get the books that I wish I had. Right. Um, and then if we think of a kind of larger group of people, what would that look like? Uh, and then I'm also trying to talk with them about how we can access uh, a book from, you know, far outside the audience that I've grown up reading all of these books that weren't for me, you know, that had, you know, that didn't at all reflect my experience. That were often like English kids in the countryside, uh, you know, upper middle class white kids who like went through a closet right into another world where they were the king, um, <laughs> like the secret king of this world. Uh, and that just was never even close to my experience, but I still love those books. And I think, you know, if we're thinking about audience, it means that we're making all these specific choices, but the specificity actually helps anyway for anybody kind of reading a book that even if you're not kind of relating to the book, you're reading about a specific character's life and you're kind of able to picture a world much better if you have the specificity of detail that comes from thinking about audience on a much more specific level. Well, Matthew, since I often write essays about writing and I love thinking about it and actually reading craft books, uh, I'm curious to know how writing craft in the real world has affected your writing and, and even maybe your teaching. Because when I, when I read this book and just hearing you talk in this interview, I just keep thinking you must be a wonderful teacher. I uh, thank you. That's that's really nice to hear. Um, I do, you know, care a lot about teaching, and actually, I would say the book really came third in that process. It was more me trying to deal with my own writing um, in the process I've described, and I was working specifically specifically on disappear doppelganger disappear at the time. I'd actually sold the book on spec, and so it wasn't finished when I had sold it, and. Uh, I realized as soon as I had sold it, which I thought would be fantastic, like not having to think about selling a book when you're writing it, um, that I'd written the last book thinking of selling it as the end goal. And so my audience the entire time had been an editor, right, who I could sell the book to. And, and now that that was off the table, right, I'd sold the book, I had to think about like, oh, like people who weren't there who were, you know, readers out in the real world. And I had to think like, what am I going to do then with the book? And it really threw me for a loop. Actually, it took me a few years to try to figure out who I was writing for then and what I thought fiction was for. Um, and as I was thinking about the book and applying those lessons in my writing, I was also trying to help, you know, help my students to have a better experience in workshop. And I was thinking about it from their side too, thinking, you know, like they too are, um, writing these stories that are so personal to them. And yet in workshop, we're often talking about it as if those stories are directed toward us and how rarely are we like the ideal audience for the other person in workshop or maybe like one person in the glasses, but the entire workshop is not. And, and so in trying to kind of help my students in the way that I needed help on the page too, um, a lot of the things in Craft the Real World came out of just trying to be a better writer and a better teacher. Um, and, and rather than the other way around, I kind of came to those ideas in practice and then uh, felt like now that I had done some thinking on them, that it would be nice to kind of put them together and share them uh, so that other people could kind of take those ideas further than me. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing them with us. And I hope our listeners take them on as well. Um, so thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks so much, Matthew. Thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend. In Book Trends this week, we're talking about returns. And since Brooke has worked in publishing, she's going to explain a bit about what returns are and why they're even a thing. Yeah, well, the origins of returns in book publishing actually date back to the Great Depression. So that's how long we've been living with this. Uh, But basically, book publishing is a returns-based industry. And that means that when you sell a book to a retailer, if they don't sell it, they're allowed to send it back. And the reason that this is problematic for the industry at large is that returns policies don't really incentivize careful ordering. Uh, It means that bookstores can take whatever they want and then return turn the books without a real penalty. And publishers also play into the problem by flooding bookstores with more books than those bookstores potentially need because the excuse is always, well, you can take them uh, because they're returnable. (laughs) And so it just creates an accountability problem on both sides. And I personally would love to see this archaic way of doing business be abolished, um, but I'm not sure that that can or will happen anytime soon. Yeah, I've been long fascinated by this because I don't think there's another business sector that operates like this where you can return the product to the original source. And I think it's especially tough for small presses and indie writers. And I speak from experience because I published a book with a small press once who didn't observe this returns tradition. And as a result, my book was carried in very few bookstores because they had to own that book and sell it. And also, I know this can create a lot of headache from an inventory management perspective and and even in royalties accounting because you don't really know when books will come back. And from what I understand, Brooke, there's no real time limit, right? Uh, Bookstores can return books whenever they want to or whenever those books don't sell. Yep, (laughs) that's right. And uh, it's a real hassle and something that all authors should better understand, you know, which is why it's this week's book trend. Uh, It's one of the quirks of this industry that's a real pain point, honestly. And the more you're prepared for it, the more you can temper your expectations. Uh, A small silver lining, though, is that book returns generally are down. It's a little bit of a double-edged sword only because a lot of this has to do with Amazon not being a big offender of returns. Uh, And what happens is they usually will sell books to a third-party vendor rather than return them to the publisher. And this brings up other issues, but if I had to choose between taking books back or having the original seller sell them to a third party, I would definitely choose the latter. Yeah. Well, thanks for that little lesson, Brooke. It's, It's always fun to talk shop with you and give our listeners a little insight into what I'll call the wonky side of this industry. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you, everybody. We are a weekly podcast. We're happy to be back with you for this uh, fourth year that we recently launched. You can download us. We, of course, appreciate if you would spread the word, listen and subscribe, and we'll be back in your queue next week. <laughs>